Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. It's Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR. I'm Ben Kiefer. Joining us today with their analysis, Chris Larimer, professor of political science at the University of Northern Iowa. He's in our Cedar Falls studio. Hi, Chris. Hello, Ben. Jim McCormick is with us, professor of political science at Iowa State University. He is in our Ames studio. Hello there, Jim. Hi, Ben. And in our programs, we love to uh, invite our listeners to join us as we clip through, survey of about a half dozen, perhaps more, depending on how long we spend with each of our issues today during Politics Day. Later in the hour, we want to certainly talk about the uh, the president's budget to be released tomorrow, but we're hearing a lot of reports about what's in it and uh, how it's connected with the debt limit showdown. Uh, the Fox News uh, Dominion lawsuit revelations continue to come. Those uh, false claims by Tucker Carlson of Fox News about January 6th, uh, splitting a response from the GOP. Um, also, the CPAC conference, which ended on the weekend, um, and uh, we'll go abroad. Uh, for um, perhaps the last few minutes of our program to talk about Ukraine and China accusing the U.S. of containment, warning of potential conflict. And uh, because we are less than a year from the Iowa caucuses, the GOP candidates visiting Iowa. If you'd like to join our conversation, 1-866-780-9100. Let's tackle some state uh, politics. We heard about that in our news just now. Uh, gentlemen, I'd like your comments on the flurry of activity at the State House now that uh, we have um, passed the first funnel deadline over halfway through the session. If you look at the, I guess, so. Uh, the end of their per diem pay, I think, at the uh, end of uh, April. Governor Kim Reynolds had her goals in the condition of the state address back in January. Most of those goals have survived the funnel deadline, which was last uh, week. Several have already been signed into law. Her private school scholarship program uh, signed that in January. She signed in February the medical malpractice liability limits law. Uh, other aims in the second half of this session include restructuring Iowa's system of state agencies, also the um, multitude of health care proposals. Uh, Chris, let me turn to you. Uh, how would you characterize the 2023 legislative session so far for Republicans firmly in control of both chambers? I think it's proceeded as you would expect when you have uh, state government under unified control, and particularly given the, the majorities in both the Iowa House and the Iowa Senate for Republicans. When you have unified control of that nature, there's there's no natural stopping point or break in the legislative process as when you have divided government or compound divided government where you have one chamber controlled by one party and the other chamber controlled by the other party. So what we've seen is sort of what you would expect, whether it's Democrat or Republican unified control, that there's no break in the legislative process. Those bills are moving their way to the governor's desk, and the, the, the governor is, is signing those bills into law. And so this is sort of what we'd expect. It's just in, in terms of how the process has unfolded. But I, I think, you know, some of the the nature of these changes, how big these changes are, are really reshaping the way state government's going to look. As, as you mentioned, there's the state government uh, reorganization bill that's now moving through, but also just the way that money is collected in Iowa and money is spent in, in Iowa is being fundamentally reshaped. If you're talking about, you know, and this was last legislative session about the, the introduction of the, the flat tax that's being phased in now, but we've mm -hmm. heard Governor Reynolds talking about 
altogether removing individual income tax in Iowa, but then also the way education funding works, right? That's the the biggest line, the biggest item in Iowa's budget is education money. And so we are seeing fundamental changes to the way that state government and state policy looks in the state. Yeah, Chris, I'd be interested in your your thoughts because also because well both of you uh, teach um, younger generations, new voters uh, uh, in, in your classes uh, and we have uh, these protests that have been uh, well, we had a, a walkout uh, high school students last Wednesday and uh, a few dozen uh, high schools uh, across the state also uh, a thousand or two Iowans rallying outside the state house on Sunday more protests I think uh, in in the off here, but uh, and we see these bills advancing a, a, a ban on gender affirming care for transgender minors. Uh, we have that bathroom bill, um, effectively banning transgender students from using the bathroom or locker room that aligns with their uh, uh, gender identity. Um, uh, Chris, uh, also with your contact with again with your contact with younger people in your daily work there at the university, uh, what is your view on this, and what are you hearing from your students, perhaps? Well, you know, I, I, I think you, when you when you see the the protests, the, the reaction to to the bills, the, the the next question is, you know, are are there going to be um, electoral repercussions? Is this going to lead to, you know, have an effect on the next round of state legislative elections? And I think, you know, we obviously we don't know yet. Those next state legislative elections will be in twenty twenty four, but that's that's the next question: Is there going to be an electoral backlash uh, to these bills? Are these bills running a counter to uh, public opinion in the state, and then how does that affect electoral politics? I think, mm-hmm. you, you know, we're, we're we're starting to see that. I mean, it's just a a question of of what that looks like by the time we get to the end of the the legislative session. Now, yeah, and uh, Jim, your your thoughts on our, our state politics at this point through the session? Well, I think one of the things that's really quite surprising, maybe, but maybe maybe I shouldn't be surprised by it, is is how much uh, the governor has been able to work her agenda. I mean, certainly she has, as Chris pointed out, I mean, you got basically veto-proof, you know, membership uh, with with Republicans in control of the House and the Senate. But nonetheless, you you sometimes see, uh, you know, some defections here. And what has struck me is is how successful that she has been to to hold uh, the party together and to get get her agenda uh, all the way through uh, the legislature here. Uh, and I think we'll probably see that uh, through the rest of the session. I mean, there's mm-hmm. there's really not been very much defections here. If you look at some of the even I was looking at the uh, most recent votes here, you know, and they're all party line votes. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're 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 holding together here on your other question about, you know, what uh, you know, in terms of younger people. Yeah, there, I, I think there is some you know pushback in terms of younger people. But what what's not clear to me is 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 how large that pushback is. There there have been demonstrations here on this campus uh, over uh, some of the recent you know uh, legislation uh, legislative activities here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think there's still a question as to the magnitude uh, of, uh, of of support for this. And I think it'll be telling you know when as Chris pointed out you know when when we have electoral uh, uh, voting and and so on uh, will that have uh, have a real consequence here because there are really a whole spate of pieces of legislation um, that that are really going working their way through the um, the the Iowa legislature at the present time. Yeah, 
If you'd like to join our conversation, 1-866-780-9100. Email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Jim McCormick of Iowa State University, Chris Larimer of the University of Northern Iowa, two political scientists on board as we survey the latest on the political landscape, or at least as much as we can get to in an hour from sort of the uh, the most prominent features. Let's talk about this. Tomorrow, uh, President Biden set to propose policies aimed at trimming the federal budget deficits by at least two, maybe three trillion dollars over the next 10 years. Uh, this amid a fight with Republicans over raising the nation's borrowing limit. Um, what we've heard so far, the president to propose tax increases for corporations and high earners uh, to reduce deficits over the next decade. Um, Republicans um, uh, ready to condemn the budget when it comes out. Uh, they say they will propose their own next month. Um, and uh, so uh, let's start with you this time, Jim. Uh, how do you see this uh, showdown developing? It's it's hard to find the common ground where you can even have negotiations, is, isn't it? It really is. And I, I think one of the things that, uh, you know, the, what has been already leaked about the the uh, Biden uh, proposal here uh, that, as you suggested, is going to come out tomorrow uh, is this, uh, you know, increased uh, tax on high earners and particularly his statement about, uh, you know, preserving uh, Medicare here and using even some of the general funds for it. It's not clear exactly, um, you know, at least to me, how much of the, uh, the budget is going to be in terms of uh, kind of deficit uh, reduction here yet. Um, I think part of it is on the Biden side is simply, you know, taking the high ground that they're going to protect uh, Medicare. They're going to take uh, aim at uh, at the high income earners here. And they're also going to, uh, you know, work in terms of the government being able to negotiate uh, prescription drug prices here, which and all those things, I think, are very popular among the uh, public. Mm -hmm. And that really puts the Biden administration and President Biden himself. In, in good stead in terms of uh, particularly as he mo as he moves towards uh, announcing his uh, bid for reelection here. The Republicans, on the other hand, have said, you know, that they you know, they at the one on one level, they said that they're not going to, you know, touch uh, Medicare and Social Security. And, you know, they, they characterize uh, the Democrats as raising this as kind of a red as a red herring here. But they're also opposed to, uh, at least uh, on the face of it so far, on the prescription drug, on the uh, prescription drug side, they would like rather the market uh, to take care of it. And their concern is raising is that what will it do to research and development in terms of new drugs? So you really have uh, a bit of a standoff here uh, in terms of uh, the, the two parties. One of the things that I'm very interested, given my interest in foreign policy, is mm -hmm. what they're going to do with the defense budget here. Yeah. Uh, because the defense budget, of course, you know, has risen now to about $800 billion. And I'll be interested to see what the, the Biden administration, given the kind of issues that we've seen, and whether it's in terms of Ukraine and Russia or more recently with China, what happens on the defense side. Because, of course, that's one area that particularly uh, uh, some Democrats in, in, you know, in the Biden coalition would like to see uh, would like to see some trimming here. Uh, so I'll be interested to see what uh, what what plays out there on the debt limit. I don't think that the Republicans have much of a chance of, of, of making really great inroads here because, you know, all the past experiences when there when there's been an effort to shut down the government or even moving in that direction, 
the political consequences, the electoral consequences have largely been negative uh, for the party that engages in that. And that has been most often the Republicans. Okay. When we come back from a break, uh, Chris Larimer to comment on the Biden budget uh, and the um, deficit. Um, uh, when we come back, um, Chris Larimer of the University of Northern Iowa, Jim McCormick of Iowa State University, we invite you to join us, 1-866-780-9100. We also want to talk about those uh, uh, Tucker Carlson this week releasing security video from January 6th that really uh, painted some false claims, or he tried to, about what happened January 6th. We'll explore that when we come back as well. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Back with more of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer with this Politics Wednesday edition of our program. Jim McCormick of Iowa State University, Chris Larimer of the University of Northern Iowa, our two political scientists on board, uh, giving us their analysis to uh, recent uh, politics. Uh, we discussed uh, state politics uh, more than halfway through the uh, session here in our state legislature. John, John is with us from Montrose uh, and had a comment about that or a question. John, welcome to the program. Yes, thank you. You're welcome. What's yeah, my comment was, for good or ill, what makes you think they aren't doing the will of the people? I don't know if any- Iowa legislation. Yeah, I don't know if anybody said that. It seemed that. to I mean, me that we were concerned. Yeah. Well, it seemed to me that there was a, a bias or, or a thought that, mm-hmm. you know, somehow these things, which we don't like, is not the will of the people of Iowa. Well, I'm suggesting maybe the legislature, for good or ill, is actually doing the will of the people. Well, I think I think the last election would back you up there, John. I don't think there's any denying that uh, the voters have put these uh, office holders in office and, and they made uh, plans to do exactly what they're doing. Chris Larimer, perhaps you'd like to elaborate. No, I, yeah, I think, you know, follow up your point, Ben. Um, yeah, that's that's what we're waiting to see. That's, you know, as, as policies are, as when you have elections and then office holders push through uh, public policy and then and then voters react to that public policy. And so I think we're, we're just going through that natural process. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you, John from Montrose. Uh, uh, let's let's uh, get, Chris, your comments. Uh, we, we wanted your comments on the uh, budget deficit, uh, the showdown over that. Now, President Biden has refused to negotiate over the debt limit. He says he will not cut benefits for Social Security or Medicare. Jim talked about that in our last segment. And, and also some context here. The, the federal government has run deficits every year since the year 2000. And correct me if I'm wrong, gentlemen, and uh, we, we spend more money 
uh, than we receive in tax revenue in this country. The deficit ballooned under former President Trump after the onset of the recession, um, and it also remained elevated uh, in, under uh, President Biden. Uh, we have that huge uh, economic aid package signed after uh, taking office. Uh, Chris, your comment on, on where, where there may, may be common ground or not on the, on the debt. Yeah, I mean, I, I, on that question, I would agree with Jim. I think it, it, there there doesn't seem to be a lot of common ground between Democrats and Republicans, and you know, the entire budget process itself has has just gotten caught up in partisan politics. You're absolutely right. Going back to 2000, you know, we've seen this massive ex- escalation in the national debt. We've seen annual deficits um, going back to even the first term under President Obama, where annual deficits went from hundreds of billions of dollars to trillion dollar deficits kind of being the norm. And, and obviously things happen. And so th- I think that's the important thing to remember when we're talking about the, the budget process is this gets to a larger discussion about what is the role of the federal government, what is the role of the federal budget? Do mm-hmm. you want to have a balanced budget? If so, that's going to require some significant changes to what the budget looks like, right? And, and there have been reports over the last week talking about how Republicans are pushing for a balanced budget, pushing for a balanced budget amendment. This has come up in previous Congresses. Well, the structure of the budget, the way it works is, you know, you have roughly 70 to probably 80 percent of the budget is essentially mandatory spending if you include defense spending in there. So if you're talking about trying to balance the budget and there have been pro- proposals to try to do this, to try to balance the budget in 10 years, the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, which is a, a bipartisan think tank, has come out with projections. If you're going to do that and you're not going to include Social Security, you're not going to include Medicare, you're not going to include um, spending for defense or veterans, you you would have to cut the discretionary part of the budget, which is a very small portion of that pie, by about 80 to 85 percent, all those discretionary programs. Mm-hmm. right? Those are the programs that are debated on an annual basis, um, w- what Congress does on an annual basis as far as the appropriations process. So you know, the discussions about the budget are different than the national debt. They're obviously linked together, but the debt is about the national debt. The debt ceiling itself is about things that we've already spent money on. And yeah. so, you know, it, it, it's hard to keep track of all the, the moving parts. I think the, the, the bigger point here, though, and, and Jim made this point very well, is that it's just become very polarized. It's become very politicized. And so talking about deficits or talking about balanced budget or talking about the debt ceiling is, has become uh, caught up in partisan politics. And and then it also gets to that larger role about the, the philosophy of government. And, you know, you hear economists talk about, well, the, the budget doesn't have to be balanced, that roughly three, uh, a deficit of roughly 3% of GDP is considered somewhat normal because you need that, what people would call a lender of last resort. If you have an economic emergency like a recession, if you have a health emergency like a pandemic, or you have a foreign affairs emergency, yeah. you need some entity to be able to lend that money out. And as a result, you're, you're going to run deficits. So right, right. It, and, and, it gets to these. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Chris, I think right right to your point, Nick is in Des Moines listening, and he has a question relevant to, to exactly what you're saying. Hi, Nick. Welcome to the program. Hi. Um, thanks for having me. And also, I um, currently go to ISU and took Mr. McCormick um, two semesters ago. Um, side note. Um, but my question about the debt limit or ceiling is, um, could you guys elaborate on why we would still have that in place? It, it seems like in the 20 years that I've paid attention to politics, they always vote to raise the debt ceiling. Um, so it seems almost just more of a political tool rather than an actual function. I can't think of a time when they didn't raise it. Um, so could you guys expand on that? 
please? Yeah. Okay, Nick, thank you uh, from Des Moines. Perhaps, uh, Jim, you can pick up that point, since this sounds like a former student of yours. <laughs> oh, they're everywhere, right? <laughs> they they are, and they're very grateful, I'm sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think it's partly, you know, the idea of a debt limit was to exercise some discipline uh, in the spending here and giving at least a target here. But, you know, there certainly has been a movement uh, by some that we should just do away with the debt limit. But will that, in fact, uh, incite the idea that you can spend, you know, ad nauseum here uh, without any kind of limit? So it, it is an artificial limit. As Chris pointed out, it's already been revenue that has been, that has been spent here. Uh, and, the, and the question is, uh, you know, whether the, that not having this would, in fact, uh, give an uh, incentive to really even spend more and more and become, you know, we at, we're at $31 trillion now, I think, is the national debt. So it at, it at least uh, gives some pause in terms of what we should be doing. And I think the real aim now is not so much to eliminate the national debt in one quick swoop here, but in rather to change the the, uh, the trajectory of uh, of spending here. I think I think that is what I, both the Democrats and the Republicans are going to, you know, sort of focus on here in terms of, you know, this latest budget uh, budget effort here. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's move on, if we could, uh, gentlemen. Uh, more documents released yesterday in a lawsuit against Fox News. Remember, this is the voting systems company Dominion suing the network for airing false claims that the 2020 election was stolen and that it was part of the plot. The trial starts next month. Uh, We now know Fox hosts and executives repeatedly bashed uh, President uh, Donald Trump in private. Uh, Here's one Tucker Carlson text. I hate him passionately. That's a quote uh, directed at the then president. Other documents released last month showed that Fox's executives doubted the conspiracy claims they were airing. Uh, We want to get to the Tucker Carlson report of this week on January 6th. But Chris, start us off. What do these revelations over the past couple of weeks uh, tell you? Well, just, you know, not only that, the the claims that were made being made on air, um, you know, obviously run counter to what we know about the 2020 election in terms of it being a free and fair election and that it was there, there was not massive election fraud, but also that even the, the hosts, you know, behind the scenes had doubts about this and had doubts about what the former president was saying at the time. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it just, you know, it, it really shows what, what was what was happening and that what, what they were doing on air was very different than what they were seeing behind the scenes, as well as everything we know about how the, the, the 2020 election was administered. And, and, and as we've talked on the show many times about that, just no evidence of you know, election fraud. We've heard from Democrat and Republican secretaries of state, you know, saying the same thing. And it now it appears that even the hosts of, of Fox News were, were saying the same things behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jim, your comment here, and I guess the, uh, a big question, will this matter to Fox News viewers, which includes a whole lot of Americans, tens of millions of Americans? Yeah, it's very it's very interesting whether, whether it really will have, have a, an impact, you know, that there's a disjuncture between what they were saying on air and what they uh, held privately here. I mean, I guess their defense is, you know, that at least what I've read about this is that, um, you know, they were just kind of repeating, you know, as news people do, uh, you know, what what this uh, source was saying here. 
Uh, and so that's going to be kind of their defense. Uh, I don't know if that'll hold up. I mean, I guess the, again, just what I've read is that the defamation uh, statutes are such that it's it's a little bit difficult, uh, particularly, you know, when you have First Amendment issues, um, you know, involved, whether this will uh, will be persuasive to the to the courts or not. Although, given the magnitude of this, you know, at least it it, it uh, seems to me that this is, you know, they're really quite substantial here. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it will have an impact on viewers, um, I'm not so sure. I mean, you know, I, Fox continues to argue about how they lead the, you know, the cable, uh, the cable networks uh, in terms of viewership and uh, and so on. So uh, I'm not sure that uh, even with the outcome of this, uh, given the suspicion that some Fox viewers have uh, uh, of of the government and of the press more generally. Uh, you know, whether it will have a, a major impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's move on to related uh, Fox News uh, news. Uh, the Fox personality Tucker, Tucker Carlson this week releasing security video from the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol using footage provided exclusively to him by House Speaker Republican Kevin McCarthy uh, to falsely portray the riot as a peaceful gathering. Uh, here's a montage of how Tucker Carlson portrayed January 6th. This is from his Monday show. Uh, this is the montage that aired uh, on PBS NewsHour yesterday. It was neither an insurrection nor deadly. The January 6th committee knew perfectly well that Brian Sicknick was walking normally through the Capitol after he was supposedly murdered by Trump supporters. To prove that Josh Hawley was a coward, the committee released video of him loping out of the building on the afternoon of January 6th with a police escort. But in fact, the surveillance footage we reviewed shows that famous clip was a sham edited deceptively by the January 6th committee. The January 6th committee lied. Okay, Tucker Carlson of Fox. Uh, Let's hear a response from the majority leader, uh, Democrat Chuck Schumer, on Tuesday, part of his response. I, so many others who were here in the Capitol, and millions and millions of Americans are just furious with Tucker Carlson and Kevin McCarthy today. Many of my staff were here at the Capitol on January 6th. Their lives were put in danger, as were the lives of many of my colleagues, as well as police, maintenance staff, reporters, countless others. At one point, I was within 30 feet of the rioters. One of them, I was told, shouted out, let's get him, before my detail pulled me away and we ran in the other direction. To say January 6th was not violent is a lie, a lie pure and simple. I don't think I've ever seen a primetime cable news anchor manipulate his viewers the way Mr. Carlson did last night. I don't think I've ever seen an anchor treat the American people and American democracy with such disdain. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer on a Tuesday. Senate to Republican Leader Mitch McConnell, um, Minority Leader, told reporters during a press conference on Tuesday that he endorsed the Capitol Police Chief 
Tom Manger's uh, criticism that Fox host Tucker Carlson, quote, cherry-picked calmer moments from the events of January 6th on that attack that failed to provide and failed to provide context about the chaos and the violence that happened in the Capitol. Uh, Here's a bit of McConnell. He held up a copy of the police chief's statement stating he wants to associate himself entirely with that chief's opinion. My uh, concern is how it was depicted, which is a different issue. Clearly, the chief of the Capitol Police, in my view, correctly describes what most of us witnessed firsthand on January 6th. So that's my reaction to it. Um, It was a mistake, in my view, for Fox News to depict this in a way that's completely at variance with what our chief law enforcement official here at Capitol thinks. So Chris and Jim weigh in on this. It seems what I'm taking in, Republican lawmakers seem split over Carlson's false claims about January 6th. Uh, House Republicans tending to promote that false portrayal of January 6th uh, as peaceful, largely peaceful. Senate Republicans condemning it. Uh, uh, Jim, what are you seeing? What are you hearing? You know, this is a, you know, the nature of the polarizing event here. And I think the, you know, the, the, Problem with uh, Carlson's, and I, I can I can honestly say I didn't see, uh, you know, the, what what his clip was about. It just your repeat of it or part of it here. Um, you know, it seems to me has been very selective in what he has what he's uh, picked out. You know, he's been accused of cherry picking, and and I think that's uh, you know a, a very fair comment that uh, that he picked off some of these things to, to to sort of make his editorial point here. And I think what we really need to see and what I guess at some juncture, uh, Speaker McCarthy has said we'll see the whole, the whole, the whole tape here. Um, you know, I I think it was. Uh, I'm not sure how long it was, but apparently a very very lengthy uh, set of tapes here. Although there's concern about some security yeah. uh, revelations that might come out uh, if it's if it's made too public here. So I think that's what we're we're really waiting waiting for. But until then, I think there will be this kind of continued. Uh, cherry picking, uh, you know, uh, of of what the tape showed, uh, you know, to make their own case. And uh, I think that's going to be very dysfunctional mm-hmm. uh, for uh, for the American public and and frankly, for the for the media as well, uh, in, in terms of uh, being put in that kind of a uh, that kind of a position here. Let me go to Chris in the minute we have before we go to break. Uh, your view. Yeah. Similar to, to Jim. I mean, it, the fact that you know, you have Republican leaders in the Senate, you know, Senator McConnell. And we also saw in the the, the video clip of that, of his statement there, you know, you had Senator John Thune, Senator Joni Ernst standing behind him. Yep. Um, Republicans are, are already pushing back on this in, in the U.S. Senate. And we've seen a few Republican members in the House. And I think, it, you know, it, it does this it sort of reflects, you know, the challenges for for Speaker McCarthy, you know, the, the, any of these, the, all these speculation about the, the deal that he made to become Speaker, you know, was this, was this part of it as far as having to release, telling some Republican members in the House that he would release these tapes. But I think it, it's just going to be incredibly difficult for for them to make that case, given that you have Republican members of the Senate pushing back against it. And Republican and Democratic members of Congress were in the chamber at that time yeah, when it they happened. Ex- and they they saw experienced what it, what it we, we Most was. of us Americans saw it in real time. Right. They experienced it at the Capitol. We'll be back in just a moment with more from Chris Larimer and Jim McCormick on River to River. 
I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Back with more of this Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer today with our political analysts, Chris Larimer of the University of Northern Iowa, Jim McCormick of Iowa State University. And uh, we're going to move on from the Fox News um, controversy that uh, we were talking about just before the break. Let's talk about uh, the CPAC conference for nearly 50 years. Conservative grassroots activists have gathered to hear from GOP leaders at the Conservative Political Action Conference known as CPAC. Now, that latest gathering took place at the end of last week. On into the weekend, Republicans debating uh, who is the best candidate to help them win back the White House uh, in 2024. Uh, Donald Trump speaking, uh, uh, Nikki Haley speaking, uh, Sarah Palin. Also appearances by Mike Lindell, uh, CEO of MyPillow, uh, Representative Matt Gates of Florida, sitting out this year. And this is what I wanted to ask you gentlemen about uh, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, uh, the Republican National Committee chair, Rona McDaniel, also the potential presidential candidates, uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, not there. Uh, Former Vice President Mike Pence, not there. Also, uh, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott opting out instead of instead they're attending a donor retreat in Florida for the conservative anti-tax group Club for Growth. Chris, how do you see this? Uh, uh, CPAC ain't the draw it used to be. Um, and uh, I think Nikki Haley going to both conferences. But what does this tell us about the current factions within the GOP? Well, I think the, the speculation is that is this are we seeing the a, a divide within the Republican Party playing out? And is it playing out in the sense that, you know, you have one group that maybe is still <clears throat> voters still looking to align themselves with the former president, Donald Trump, versus Republicans who are who do not want to do that and see their best chances as going with another candidate, whether that's Ron DeSantis, Mike Pence, Tim Scott, whoever, Nikki Haley, whoever it might be. So I think that that's what we're, that's what the speculation is about is that, Mm -hmm. is that do we see that divide? Because CPAC, the attendance was down. Um, It was, you know, largely what the report suggests a fairly pro Trump crowd there. Um, And so that's, that's the big question. And I think that's what everybody's been wondering about as well is that once, the former president announced he was running again. What would that do to the field for presidential candidates? Would would we see more candidates coming in? Where would candidates try to position themselves? We've seen, you know, uh, former Governor uh, Nikki Haley in Iowa, mm-hmm. um, when asked about that, you know, kind of saying that she appreciated the opportunity to serve in the Trump administration, but that it's time to move on. And so I think we're slowly seeing how candidates are trying to position themselves in a way to, to move past uh, the former president. Yeah. Um, your, your view on CPAC, Jim? I basically uh, agree with what uh, Chris has said here. I mean, it really, really should have been a, a very loud message to uh, to Trump that uh, you know he does not really have uh, the the support of all of the principal uh, members of the of the party here. I mean, when you know when the uh, Republican National Committee chairwoman uh, doesn't attend, I mean that's uh, that's pretty much of a signal here. Um, and, you know, even though I think the result of the, I think they had a straw poll there or something and Trump got 60% of the vote or something like that, uh, you know, the, given the attendance was down and, and given that there were all of these people not there, 
I think that was a, a, a very strong message that really there's a really a strong movement uh, within the party that they, they really got to move away from Trump if they really want to have a chance in, in terms of 2024. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about some of these GOP candidates coming to Iowa, um, joining the race to take on um, President Joe Biden in the upcoming election. Um, we have um, Nikki Haley, the former U.N. ambassador, former President Trump, uh, officially announcing their presidential bids already. So there's others who haven't officially announced. Um, but um, Haley making campaign uh, stops already here in Iowa. Uh, both Haley and Trump back in Iowa in the coming days. Uh, also Ron DeSantis uh, uh, coming to Iowa um, uh, let's see, Haley, Friday morning, I believe, she and U.S. Senator uh, uh, Joni Ernst talking about foreign policy at a forum hosted uh, uh, in Clive. Uh, Chris, uh, what do you have your eyes on as we uh, see these GOP candidates start to focus on Iowa and, um, and their narratives in particular for capturing uh, conservative uh, voters uh, here in, uh, in the state? Yeah, I mean, a, a few things, right? Obviously, that they're coming to Iowa, they still view Iowa as important. That's, you know, probably the, the first thing. And how they talk about their campaigns, as I mentioned with uh, with Nikki Haley, talking about a way, you know, talking about her campaign in a way that's attempting to separate herself from uh, the Trump base of the Republican Party and, and watching how other candidates do that and watching for, you know, what what is the enthusiasm among Republican voters for for that kind of a campaign narrative, what does it look like? Does it generate enthusiasm? Does it look like there's enough space for a non-Trump candidate to win um, in Iowa in, in the Republican caucuses? It's also been interesting to to hear, you know, Nikki Haley, um, what we expect from from Governor uh, Ron DeSantis, talk about their policy platforms, and 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 all candidates do this when they go to states, but talk mm-hmm. about their policy platforms in a way that align with you know, whoever the top office holder in the state is that shares their party. So in this case, they're talking about their policy platforms compared to what Governor Reynolds has done. And so yeah. we've, you hear go, the, the comparisons between Ron DeSantis, his education agenda in Florida to what Governor Reynolds is, is doing on education policy in Iowa. And so then, you know, that also fuels the speculation about, well, where does this start to position Governor Reynolds? We, you know, we've talked for, you know, a couple of years about, you know, she's been, her profile within the Republican Party has been moving up. She's been, you know, co-chair, chair of the Republican Governors Association. Do we start to see, do you, I, I would expect that we would continue to hear more of that. And, you know, the, the speculation just to escalate about, you know, is she going to, is she a name that's on that short list for some of these presidential candidates for a vice presidential nomination? Yeah. And we see uh, Donald Trump's policy platform calling for <laughs> giving parents more control over their children's education by making curriculum more accessible and for the removal of materials that include, I guess, in that policy statement's quote, patently dishonest and activist-driven information about the U.S. and, and our founding. Does that sound uh, familiar? Uh, Jim, the narratives you see here and, and how you see uh, these candidates courting Iowans. One of the things I think that, that these candidates are really trying to do is sort of the kind of the, uh, identify some campaign staff and some uh, particular counties where they can count upon uh, count on support here, uh, as well as, as you pointed out, talking about the issues. I, I noted, noted that when uh, Senator Scott uh, came here, he, he actually went, uh, or the governor actually went to, a, I guess, a school with him to talk about the, the private school initiative uh, that uh, that the governor has 
has touted. I think that's what, mm-hmm. uh, what, what we'll really see. I noticed that Trump is making his one campaign stop so far, I guess in a week or so, uh, in Davenport. I thought that was kind of odd that he was picking, picking uh, Davenport as, the, uh, um, as, as a locus of, of, yeah. of his campaign stop here. Uh, I'm not sure how he's going to you know, uh, make too much hay out of that. Whereas these other candidates kind of really went around the state here. Uh, I think DeSantis is going to be here. If I have my numbers right here, he's going to be here Friday, uh, I think, um, as well in the state. And it'll be interesting to see, again, how he uh, portrays. Uh, I, I suspect he's going to talk about all of his state initiatives and how they are mirrored or at least being attempted to be mirrored uh, here uh, within Iowa. Yeah. And uh, Jim, before we hand off a, a couple of questions about foreign policy, let me finish up with Chris here on uh, this topic. I wonder, Chris, can you share uh, how you think 2024 will be different than 2016? And we remember 2016, what, featuring more than a dozen GOP candidates and, and Donald Trump um, uh, beating all of them, as it turned out, and many of those candidates staying in the race I guess by many's assessments, long after they had any chance of uh, of winning uh, the primary, didn't they? They did, and and I think you know that's what we're trying to figure out at this point is is what that field is going to look like. Again, I think what we're seeing with presidential Republican presidential candidates right now is is trying to get an assessment of where the sentiment of voters are, is for for those who are within the Republican Party. Where do you know have they are they looking for a non Trump candidate? Do they see that as a potential liability going into 2024 where, you know, I think for Republicans at the moment, they see an incumbent president in uh, President Joe Biden who potentially, not saying that he is, but potentially could be vulnerable depending on the state of the economy and, and what voters view as the, the the direction of the country, right? We, we, we know how polarized the country is, but in terms of how voters feel about the direction of the country, do you know um, the current economic status, what what inflation looks like, what you know uh, wage growth looks like, what voters can those numbers that voters can really feel is President Biden someone who is or is not vulnerable going into twenty twenty four, and then for Republican candidates, if they do view him as a potentially vulnerable incumbent, then do they start do more candidates start to jump in because they see this as an opportunity and that they think that the former president would. Um, be a liability for that opportunity, or do they see him as someone who could be a benefit? I think we don't know. We're right at the be- those beginning stages where vo- where candidates are trying to figure out what voters are feeling about uh, the future direction of the party. Mm-hmm. Jim, let me turn to you uh, for your foreign policy expertise on on China developments there. We had this week the Chinese uh, foreign minister warning Washington of, in his words, conflict and confrontation if Washington fails to change course in relations with Beijing. Uh, following an accusation, uh, I guess this some time ago, from the uh, Chinese leader, Xi Jinping, that Western governments led by the U.S. trying to encircle and suppress China. Um, we have those points of tension, Jim, we've discussed with you on previous programs in this U.S.-Sino relationship, conflicts over Taiwan, uh, COVID-19, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, what do you make of these latest comments by, I guess he's the new foreign minister in China, isn't he? Yes, he was just uh, just appointed, uh, apparently, um, uh, and served for a time previously uh, as ambassador in Washington. And he's kind of known known as kind of, uh, you know, this sort of wolf diplomacy. Uh, and, and some of his comments, you know, saying that, uh, you know, that um, they're really headed for conflict if there's uh, not a change in course on the part of the United States. 
There have been some sanctions now imposed by the Biden administration, additional sanctions uh, against uh, against China. Uh, there has been an effort uh, with the uh, uh, Indo-Pacific strategy here that the Biden administration has put forward uh, in terms of trying to ramp up ties with our uh, allies and with our partners in uh, in in Asia here. Uh, but I think it's a little bit um, a little bit uh, hyperbole here that's saying that China has been uh, subject to real containment. If you look at the kind of expansion that China has had, I mean, all of the trading partners in Southeast Asia or in Asia generally, uh, their leading trading partner is uh, is China. China has been deeply involved in uh, in Africa. It has, has ties with with the Europeans and so on in terms of trade. So it's hardly a, an element in any in any real way to compare to what what the United States and the Soviet Union were engaged in and, and the policy of containment. So uh, again, I think it's basically a little bit of this uh, of, of this uh, diplomatic. Uh, uh, statement here rather than rather than uh, substantively uh, substantively based here now I think there is a danger and and uh, certainly uh, it is important I mean the Biden administration has said that they want competition with China with guardrails uh, and I don't know if the uh, foreign minister of China is assuming that uh, you know some limitations on making claims that China can can mo- dominate the South China Sea or the East China Sea uh, is is somehow uh, you know uh, restricting their their activities here. They're simply guardrails on on the kind of behavior, rather than you know their challenge to, to the Philippines and taking over territory of the, of the Philippines or even their conflict with the Vietnamese. So uh, again, I, I think it's uh, it's a little bit uh, uh, extreme here. The other comment that was made, and I don't want to go on to. I'm sorry to go on for so long, but. You know, that that in fact, uh, because the United States uh, is providing arms to Taiwan, uh, that therefore China can provide uh, uh, support uh, to to Russia against Ukraine. I don't think Ukraine uh, in any way threatens the sovereignty of of Russia. Of course, the very reverse is is really true, whereas Taiwan, uh, its independence or its uh, territorial integrity uh, is is subject to rather uh, constant uh, uh, harassment here by the uh, by the PRC in uh, in recent years here. So I think the 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 metaphor that he's trying to come up with, or the analog that he's trying to come up with, uh, really doesn't uh, really doesn't hold much water. Here. Mm-hmm. And Jim, we have a couple minutes left. Let's finish off with this because I'm I'm curious about what you would have to say about China's relations with some of our friends, also others, our Asian, China's Asian neighbors, Japan, um, India, uh, other Asian neighbors. Has this um, uh, sort of fraught relationship with the U.S. had fallout? How are, how are those other Asian neighbors reacting? Well, well Japan, for example, take, take Japan. Uh, you know, J- Japan, you know, it's a leading trading partner, uh, you know, is... Not only the U.S. but also with uh, with China and and relations there have been at least you know they they had a hiccup you know a few years ago and they still have an island dispute uh, you know uh, in in the South China Sea but they have been uh, stabilized and even there was a uh, some discussion of a you know a visit by Xi Jinping to to Japan although that is because of COVID nineteen that has been put on the back burner I think the more problem uh, area of course is with India here. 
you know, the, India and China has had not only wars with one another over, over the decades, uh, but they've had a continuous uh, border conflict here, uh, some territory that China has seized along, that India has claimed uh, in, uh, in the Kashmir area and so on. So uh, those uh, relationships are fraught. And, um, you know, the Chinese are very unhappy that, uh, that the Indians have become much more active in the so-called Quad, this, this uh, group of the U.S. And, and Australia and Japan and India have now been much more active in terms of cooperating with one another and having joint exercises. So the relationship between these two major powers uh, in, uh, in Asia, uh, you know, continued to be uh, at least uh, uh, difficult. I suppose more for for India at the present time uh, than 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 for Japan. Yeah. Okay. Finishing up with foreign policy from Jim McCormick of Iowa State University. Thanks to Jim and Chris Larimer uh, of the University of Northern Iowa. Chris and Jim, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. Of course, uh, we didn't get to everything, but uh, we sure enjoyed your your insights on some of the uh, hot political news out there. Thank you both. Thanks very much, Ben. Thank you, Ben. Well, you've probably heard about or maybe even experienced yourself the nationwide Adderall shortage if you have a prescription there. Tomorrow on the program, I'll talk with a Midwest woman who has ADHD. She's struggled to get Adderall for her disorder. We'll learn about that shortage. Also, the story of how 71 women saved a celebrated building in the central Iowa community of Jefferson. Tomorrow on the program, we'll hope you'll tune in. Today's program produced by Samantha McIntosh with help from Danny Gear. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Take care. Talk to you again tomorrow. Thank you.